Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. the pollen has gotten to me, but I'm going to croak my way through this one because this is one of the more exciting shows that I've done in a long time. I have Charlie Pellegrino with us again, and he joins us to honor the 110th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. Charlie has worked closely with James Cameron, including science consultant on Avatar Films. He's he's dived in submersibles to hide hydrothermal vents, and the Titanic, and is author of numerous technical and popular books, including three New York Times bestsellers and a successful trilogy written under a pen name. He's also the scientist who invented the Jurassic Park recipe. On top of that, I've read five or six of his books. I find them all absolutely intriguing, and there is an element about them that is magical, you get sucked in, you become a part of the story, and you live the adventure with him as opposed to just listening to him, hearing him talk about it. Now, of course, tonight he's just going to talk, but I totally, totally recommend you check out all of the books he has written because they are all phenomenal. You can't put them down, and sometimes they haunt you and sometimes they create magic, but no matter what, it is an amazing experience. And you can find him at charlespellegrino.com. So check his stuff out. But please, wait till after the show. So welcome to Nightlight again, Charlie. Thanks for being here. 
Hello. Hello, hello. So, yeah. so this is yesterday was the yesterday was the actual anniversary. But I think we're still in the we're still in the the time frame because they were picking up dead bodies at least the next day. So we're still in that same period of time that that is reminiscent of the sinking of the Titanic. And right at about sunset uh, this day, 110 years ago, uh, sunset Eastern time, uh, they had picked up the last of the lifeboats and uh, the rescue ship Carpathia was getting ready to head out of the ice field and to New York. It just, um, but there were other ships that came in to pick up the flotsam and jetsam and and whatever bodies were there to be found as well, weren't there? Uh, Yes, some of those ships were heading in about now. The Californian, the captain was told to stay back and look for anyone who might be floating on debris, but uh, he just did not want to be around ice at night. And as soon as the Carpathia was steaming toward New York, the captain of the Californian uh, just started steaming also uh, toward the east of the U.S. Well, it's, it's after reading about it so often and seeing, of course, the film and reading A Night to Remember and then, of course, <clears throat> uh, Clive Cussler did a, a book on raising the Titanic. And, you know, it, it's sort of like you can't get rid of it. It has so much... It still has so much to share with us as far as stories of people and how people behaved and how life has changed and, and the times. Um, it was amazing how a lot of the people in steerage didn't even expect that they would get on a lifeboat. They just assumed that they wouldn't because in that time frame, they were less than, than human actually, according to... Right, and some of the people from Steerage actually believed, well, this is the way society is set up and this is the way it ought to be, and they didn't even feel that there was anything wrong being told to wait until everyone else in the upper classes was away on uh, on the lifeboats first. Not everyone thought that way. There were some who uh, went up and uh, broke through the fences up from the forward well deck up toward the lifeboats. And uh, one man, uh, one of the crew on the Titanic actually threw one of the people from third class who was trying to get up there, actually threw him down the stairs. And another man, a big Irish or Scottish fellow, came up and just punched that guy and threw him down the stairs and then said, everyone, just follow me. And they did. Well, I think it it was, for me, it was your books kind of gave me another spin on the whole thing from the movie. I mean, the movie was a beautiful movie and beautifully done. But but when you you start reading about how some of the crew members, I think it was one of the kitchen staff, put on a top hat and a top coat and, and just walked up you know, passed everybody and walked up to to get in a lifeboat because they assumed he was one of the wealthy. Right, right. And that was one of the Italian kitchen staff, one of only two who survived, because one of the first things that they did, uh, you know, just some small group of officers decided there was some animosity 
between Italy and England at that time, and they were herded down in the aft end of E-deck, the Italian kitchen staff, and they were locked down there. And uh, this guy and one of his assistants, he saw this happening. He managed to run out of that area, put on a top hat and a good coat, and just went up and managed to get off on one of the lifeboats on the starboard side where William Murdoch was just, he didn't like what he saw with some of the bottlenecks happening with some of the lifeboats. It was hard enough to get people going into a lifeboat to begin with because the water was dead calm. And it looked much safer on the Titanic than out in the Atlantic in a lifeboat. And even where Murdoch was telling anyone in the beginning, just get on the boat, get out of here. And uh, they were reluctant. So even on his side of the ship where he was letting husbands join their wives, uh, he had a hard time filling those first few boats. And one of the things that one of the thing reasons that people had not quite caught on yet that the telegraph, the wireless telegraph, was also a rescue device. People had heard stories about castaways and people going off in lifeboats and down to dying from thirst, or you know, there were stories about cannibalism at sea on lifeboats. Uh, actually, these. Things like that actually happened, but now you had this new device. So a ship could radio another ship by Morse code, SOS, come help us. And many people but, did not quite grasp, grasp the point yet that a rescue ship could be on its way. But in some of those ships that were just laying dead in the water, they turned their, their radios off when they went to bed. They didn't have somebody sitting listening. I mean, and the Titanic right. was warned a number of times. Yes. I mean. And uh, the, the thing is you had even the radio operators had not quite surrounded the fact that this was a rescue device as well as sending stock reports back and forth for, from ship to <laughs> ship to passengers in, these, uh, in the Olympic-class ships and the uh, high, you know, the luxury German and British and American liners. Uh, so even they didn't quite catch on. It might be a good idea, especially around ice fields and at night and on moonless nights, have two radio guys and have one of them stay up through the night. And, in fact, only less than 20 miles before the Titanic hit the ice, uh, the ship that ran away and might actually have left some people floating on wreckage of the Titanic, uh, the Californian had stopped in ice and was radioing out that uh, we're stopped and surrounded by ice. It's dangerous here. And only about 20 minutes before the Titanic struck the ice, they saw this large ship coming over the horizon and radioed to it to warn about ice. And the radio operator Phillips on the Titanic, he was so busy, he was so behind in sending messages, many of them being things like stock reports and prices of ostrich hair that was being uh, ostrich feathers and the prices of feathers for hats and things like that, that uh, he first, the other ship was so close that Phillips uh, 
speakers in his ears actually hurt his eardrums. The second thing was he was so busy that he just tapped back to the other ship. As it's trying to say, literally, we're surrounded by ice and stopped here. It could be dangerous. And he tapped back, shut up, shut up, we're busy here. And the operator on the Californian just took off his headphones and shut down the equipment and went to bed. And, in fact, there was a guy that that operator on the Californian had been teaching how to read and listen to Morse code. And uh, he uh, came into the room just before the Titanic's SOS went out. And probably at just the moment that uh, Captain Smith came to the Marconi shack, was talking to the two men at the Marconi device and what they should send out and what the ship's position was. So there was about a three- or four-minute period that the Titanic was silent, and it seems that Evans picked up the headphones on the Californian, was listening during precisely that moment, heard nothing, and put the headphones down and shut the equipment off. And then only minutes or maybe even seconds later, the first call of distress went out from the Titanic. Every little thing that could possibly have a chance of saving lives, every little thing that could go one way or the other and go wrong, they all lined up that night. I know there's a place in the book where it's if, if this, then this, then this. I mean, there are so many things that could have changed the whole thing. Um, you know, the, the different, uh, the, the, the sighting of the icebergs, if, if Titanic had slowed and gone and not gone full speed, it, it, it's rumored, I think, that, that the captain was trying to set a record and that that's why he was steaming full speed ahead into um, an ice field. He was actually pushing the engines above what was safe to push them, I do believe. Right, but it wasn't uh, trying. They weren't trying to set a record. It's possible we know they did have a lot of trouble with the coal fire on the starboard side, and mm-hmm. it might be that they were trying to get to New York. Ismay, there's enough eyewitness testimony that he seemed to be setting the speed, and that they would have to try to get to New York under cover of night, just in case the fire department was needed to go into ah. the ship and help with the coal fire. They didn't want the bad publicity, and uh, that was uh, George Tullock, one of the leaders of Titanic Expeditions, had studied that fire very closely, and he thinks that's, that could have been a thing that was setting the speed, and he was probably correct. But the well, Titanic the, the, was not trying to set a speed record because there were ships that were faster, And they knew that the Germans, for example, were building faster ships. And so the approach to the Titanic was to make it much more luxurious, which to have very wide dining areas and things of that sort meant, oh, we should lower the watertight compartments, lower the bulkheads a deck or two so that we can have these wide open spaces. I want to go back for a second to the fire that fire was so hot <clears throat> that the steel plates on the Titanic were red. Well, Could only inside have... the Titanic. The steel plates, 
on the between these two coal bunkers, they had gone red and they had warped a little, which meant that they were also mm-hmm. a little more brittle and they were going to have to do the job of holding back some water. But the other thing that happened, when you have a coal fire, the strategy was you empty all the coal out of the bunker that is a problem, and you put all of that coal into the furnaces for the steam engines first, which they did. By uh, Sunday morning, they had all the coal out of the bunker, uh, out of these two bunkers. And because of that, the ship had a slight list over to the port side. The rocks, the coal, they're heavier than water. And uh, Park Stevenson, uh, one of Jim Cameron's uh, historical engineers, looked into that in some detail, and he said, you know, the coal fire might have actually kept the Titanic because they emptied that coal bunker, and she was a little more heavily weighted toward the port side, that that might have actually kept the Titanic from filling up and leaning over to the starboard side and doing what most ships do when they have damage along one side, like the Consta Concordia, is within about 45 minutes to be at a tilt where the lifeboats on the other side cannot be launched and then to capsize. And initially, that's what Thomas Andrews thought was going to happen. He initially thought the Titanic had barely more than an hour when it had more like two and a half hours. So uh, the coal bunker fire might have actually saved lives by creating a condition where all of the lifeboats could be, almost all of the lifeboats could be launched. Well, that didn't, and I think I recall um, So when you went through your, your time period of what happened next, 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 and next, that the, the Titanic, it, it seemed to me from what I was reading, and I can be wrong, but it seemed to me that the Titanic actually um, was pushed up and to the port side um, by by whatever of the iceberg was under it so that it was raised up and then it was punctured and then it went back down. Well, uh, there was almost certainly ice further back behind the bridge. The coal bunkers, the forward one was named, uh, I mean the boiler rooms, they were named backwards. So the one near the furthest up front was Boiler Room 6. Then you go back to Boiler Room 5. Boiler Room 5 was doing all right except for water going into the coal bunker. Boiler Room 4 had damage beneath, right under, right on the keel of the ship. So the water was coming up into Boiler Room 4 from below. And uh, the iceberg, when it was seen by people near the bridge, it was at about the height of the boat, boat deck. By the time the iceberg, uh, the Titanic passed where there was the after bridge, it was much. It yeah. was about twenty or thirty feet higher than the boat than the boat deck, which was probably all. Everyone saw walls of ice falling off of the iceberg. So if you have the side facing the ship and you're shaving off a lot of ice, you're shaving off a lot of weight right away, and that side begins to rise. So if there was any knobby protrusion under the Titanic, it was being raised. And that's probably what hit Boiler Room 4, 
that suddenly you had a sword of ice rising and actually breaking part of Boiler Room 4. And at that point, the ship just cannot float. The forward uh, compartments are going to fill up, and it's going. the front of the ship is going to carry the rest of the ship right down. It just, you know, it's when you read the book and you go through the minute by minute, by minute it is, it, it's amazing because you have them right there. But there were things about Captain Smith that I didn't, I didn't even know. I mean, um, that he, he had them go half speed ahead um, right. after it had hit. After it hit, it's almost uh, one analogy I've used is if you hit a really bad pothole in New York City, and in New York City there's lots of them now, and if you hit one of those, you slow down right away or stop and and pull over. And you might uh, go out and look at the damage like they did. They had people sounding through the ship, and you might start ahead slowly to see if your axle is hand, handling right, if your steering is handling right. And that's probably what happened. Okay, let's go ahead slow. And very early on, they would have felt through the wheel that the ship was not handling right, that it was gaining weight on the starboard side. And then they slowed down. But another reason that they slowed down and stopped, because there were a couple of crew people who were in the Folksal of the ship. The very their quarters were in the very front of the ship. They ran up to the top, and uh, one of them saw the iceberg going by past the bridge. Went down, woke two of his friends, and then they came up a couple of decks back up and pointed to an iceberg as the ship so- stopped and said, "Yeah, that's the one we hit." Well, it couldn't have been because uh, the ship had then been moving. Uh, they to go down to where he was and come back to the come back onto the deck would have been a matter of uh, maybe 45 seconds to a minute and a half, maybe two minutes, but at least 45 seconds. And by then, the iceberg they hit was far astern and out of sight. So what probably happened is they, as they're moving slowly forward, they see yet another iceberg that is Mm. nearby, and it's a large one, so they just cut the engines and stopped. They were in the middle of a whole field of ice, and when the sun came up in the morning, they saw how many huge icebergs were all around them, most of them higher than 200 feet sticking out of the water. The one that uh, the Titanic struck was uh, only up to the height of the boat deck, only about 60 feet high. And uh, that could be seen, uh, it couldn't be really be seen from the crow's nest until they were within, uh, it would have, at that height, seen from the crow's nest, literally looking down on it, it wouldn't have been starting to block the stars and be recognizable as an iceberg that they were approaching until they were only about 400 feet away. And they were moving at 40 feet per second, so they only had 10 seconds. That ship probably hit exactly the angle it was aimed when the iceberg was first sighted. And, in fact, William Murdoch was 
down, okay, more than 30 feet below the crow's nest. He happened to be on the starboard wing bridge, which goes out a little ways over the water. But he was, the important thing is he saw the stars being eclipsed probably a couple of seconds before the crow's nest. And when the crow's nest called on the phone to the bridge, Murdoch was already giving orders. Officer Wild, he picks up the phone and he just very, he says, what did you see? And they say, iceberg dead ahead. And the guy just said, thank you. And that was it. He already knew. And the ship was already trying to turn, but nothing could be done. Uh, Frederick Fleet in the crow's nest, his imp- he was still on the phone when the ship hit the iceberg. And he said later on, he believed that it was the iceberg itself that was changing the direction of the ship. Ah. Now, Captain Smith, was he brought out of retirement to do this? or Right, right. Was he, he was retiring, and then it was, uh, well, we'd like you to take one last trip. And he was very, uh, you know, very good with mingling socially, and everyone loved him. Uh, he... Uh, the pay, the people who sailed constantly back and forth across the Atlantic, they loved sailing with Captain Smith. And so they said, we'd like you to do one last mission. And so he went aboard for what was being celebrated as his retirement cruise. And the whole plan he, was bring the Titanic really, and then retire. <clears throat> he didn't seem to be, he seemed almost shocked that the ship was damaged, was going down. Um, I, I don't, I've, I've only known a couple of ship's captains, but they seem to be very sharp and, and very um, focused, and he didn't seem that way. So I, I'm kind of wondering. Well, I know actually, that he was shocked at first like anyone would be. And when Thomas Andrews, he traveled below deck with one of the engineers and with Thomas Andrews, the shipbuilder, and when Andrews said she cannot float, yes, he was shocked, just like in the movie. He was, the ship can't sink, and yet it was going to. And people have kind of dismissed Captain Smith's behavior because for most of the next two hours, he's not there. He has a lot of missing time, and you don't really realize what that missing time probably meant until, for example, people who've been on ships that were sinking, Jacques Cousteau's and Bob Ballard's science officer, Tom Detwheeler, and he said in those times he was on a point where it seemed the Calypso was going to be lost in an ice storm, and uh, Cousteau's working and filming it all the time, but then he'd disappear well what what a, and this is probably what captain smith did just like cousteau cousteau was below deck he was there here there everywhere chopping ice on the upper deck and throwing it overboard uh going below deck making sure the engines and the pumps and everything were working and that's probably what captain smith did he was below deck down in engineering down in the boiler rooms and making sure that everything that could be done to give the ship a little more time to get all the lifeboats off, that it was being done. And 
why you don't hear so many, you hear only one or two reports of him seeing, being seen below deck, but that's because most of the engineering crew died. Only two of oh, them yeah. survived, and they were sent up at the last minute. People like uh, equipment oiler Alfred White, uh, he survived because he was sent up near the end. The uh, Mr. Parr decided, obviously, that, well, if we've only got about 20 minutes left here and the floors are beginning to slant faster and faster, the equipment won't have to be oiled anymore. It'll last as long <laughs> as we need it. And he told uh, White, why don't you go up and see if there's any lifeboats left and come back and tell us. And just sent them uh-huh. up so they did have a chance of surviving. And he did survive in one of the most miraculous survival survival stories of that night. Well, he, it, it was, I mean, they're all miraculous as, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have trouble grasping, you know, women saying, no, no, I don't want to get in the lifeboat. I'll stay on the ship. You know, and the men saying, you know, go ahead. I'll be, I'll be along later. The nobility yeah. of the people was really quite outrageous. And, you know, um, that, that Ismay just stepped onto a boat and floated off, um, that blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, uh, the thing is that where Ismay was, there was, according to other people who were there when he stepped into boat C, there was absolute pandemonium. There was, a mob was beginning to build. People were beginning to rush the boat. And 17-year-old Jack Thayer, who went into the water and survived, uh, he said there was a gunfire, at first a warning shot, and Jack Thayer said the gun went off right next to Ismay's ear and that he dove into that boat. He didn't just step into it. Thayer said he dove in, and he said, I don't blame him one bit because I would have jumped into the boat too if I were there. Now, Ismay, later on, he, he didn't want to uh, have it remembered that there was absolute panic and that one of the officers had fired warning shots, then shot two passengers, and then while everyone was standing in shock, then saluted and shot himself. Several people saw this. And uh, the effect of that was the rush on the very last boat, boat A, stopped. And the people in boat A at least had a chance, but not very much of a chance. None of them were ever seen again because that boat was still attached to a davit. There was one steward who was trying to cut the boat free and actually succeeded after the bow of the Titanic went under and he went under with the lifeboat still cutting and then the lifeboat popped up to the surface after the whole bow section of the Titanic all the way up to at least as far after the gymnasium was underwater and this one lifeboat parted up, popped up as a part of the wreckage. And the guy I mentioned before, Alfred White, No one really believed him. We had uh, letters from a relative. We had his account. Bill McQuitty had the letters from Alfred White when he was making the film A Night to Remember. And uh, he believed this couldn't really be an accurate account or maybe not even a real account because this guy clearly describes the Titanic breaking in two underneath him. And... uh, 
it's only after the Titanic was found that uh, people started looking and saying, wow, he was right. And by the way, people who were right near the Titanic in some of the lifeboats, like Marjorie Newell Robb, uh, who were you know within 400 feet of the Titanic, also said it broke in half. Mm-hmm. And so Alfred White, he had gone through parts of the Titanic in the stern and couldn't really find his way up. There were actually some gates that were drawn, and he tried. He could get them open, but the people who were in these uh, rooms gathered on the floor, he saw people in prayer, and he could not get their attention as he's saying, come here, follow me. And he couldn't get their attention, and the floor was slanting faster and faster, and he went up through the fourth, excuse me, the fourth smokestack up a ladder within the stack. Because the fourth smokestack is called the dummy smokestack. It was put there mostly so that it would uh, make the Titanic, four of them made it look more streamlined. And the only smoke that came out of the fourth funnel was from the kitchens. And it went up through the top and little puffs of smoke came out there. So it was fine to go up a ladder inside that stack. And there was a little observation stand up about midway up that smokestack. And that's where he came up. And he's looking down and he's seeing the, by the time he got up there, the first two smokestacks were already underwater. He saw the second stack fall over to one side the third stack was still there in front of him, and what impressed him was that the lights were still on. In fact, at one point, the lights went out, and they came back on, and he knew that Mr. Parr and his friends were still down there, still keeping the lights on, still doing whatever they could to maybe save lives by keeping the power on for the lights, for the telegraph operators, and uh, so. The, and while Mr. White is up there, he sees the between the third and fourth smokestacks, he saw as if a cleaver had come down on the ship between them and that a huge crevice opened up. And the fourth smokestack started going over very gently, still held by its guy wires on the starboard side, and he just went into the water very gently. And another thing, his story must have been very well known, because then 1914 comes along, and it's World War I, and the Titanic sister ship, Britannic, is a hospital ship. It gets struck either by several torpedoes or by a row of mines tied together, starts going down in very much the same way as the Titanic, and the engineering crew went up Alfred White's path. And Violet Jessup, uh-huh. a nurse, she was a stewardess on the Titanic and a nurse on the Britannic, and she sees that the men, the engineers who survived, took Alfred White's path. They went up with the fourth, fourth smokestack and came down very gently with it, and every one of them survived to be picked up by lifeboats. Wow. Violet well, what, Jessup what I... had quite an interesting life because she was also on the uh, Titanic sister ship Olympic when a naval vessel crashed into it and broke it open right between two of the watertight compartments. Holy mackerel. And when she was on the Titanic, she didn't tell anyone, even her roommate, that she had been on the Olympic because they didn't, she didn't want anyone thinking she was 
too much drama in her life and maybe even bad luck. And then she went from the <laughs> Titanic to the Britannic. And she was one of the heroes of the Britannic, actually. She was severely injured as the Britannic went down and just immediately, immediately went from the Britannic to the lifeboats and to being a nurse and saving many lives in, in spite of her severe injuries. My goodness. <clears throat> well, one of my favorite people was Lightoller. I mean, he to me was a fascinating character. Yeah, he's Lightoller is certainly a fascinating character. In hindsight, Smith should have either, either thrown him overboard or put him <laughs> in the very first lifeboat out of there because he saved at least 30 people when he was in the water. And he, on that overturned piece of wreckage, and it was uh, a bit of genius in how he saved all those people under those terrible conditions. And later on, the Battle of Dunkirk, he was one of the heroes of Dunkirk. One of the main storylines going through the movie Dunkirk is really based on him. And oh my yet, on the Titanic itself, he caused the bottlenecks. He was, you know, parting women from their husbands, and there were all these delays from that at the lifeboat. He was parting women from children, even. If a boy well, was 12, he was old enough to be a man, as far as Lightoller and his men were concerned. And yeah. uh, worst of all, he sent men down to open the gangway door, because when he saw he was getting the boats off mostly empty, he figured, okay, put them down on the water, have the boats come back, and have this gangway door open, and the water will be up to that door soon, so people can go out that gangway door onto the lifeboats. And at the inquest into the sinking of the Titanic, there were two of them, and one of them asked him, uh, Officer Lightoller, the ship was sinking by the bow. It was going down by the front. Didn't you think it might be a bad idea to open up a huge gangway door, another hole in the ship, in the, sh in the front of a ship that's going down by the front? And he was like, well, no, I didn't think it could sink at the time. The Titanic was, it couldn't sink. Of course, yeah. it was down there on the bottom. It could and it did. Yeah, no, he, um, the, 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 what they did with separating, I mean, oh, there was a woman that had two children and one was a little boy, and he was, I, yeah. I, I think he was eight, and eight or 12, maybe he was 12. But Yeah, he but was a he little older than them. eight. Yeah. The and, and crew she, wouldn't let Rosa Abbott get onto the boat with her children. They said, you can go, but your children have to stay. And she stayed with her two sons and, and went down with the ship. Lived. Yeah. The, uh, as the stern section, she was on the ship after it broke away. She was on the stern in the after well deck. And as the water, uh, as the stern started corkscrewing down, both of her sons were pulled right out of her arms. Just amazing. And there were, yeah. And she ended and up he, on that boat that went down with the ship and then popped to the surface. That's, well, not only, not only were they discriminating that way, 
but there was a black man who I think was second class, maybe right. not first. Mr. LaRoche. And he, yeah, and he was. It was an interracial uh, couple, and they he, he he tried to prove that he was second class and he deserved to get on. Did they let him on or not? I can't remember. Well, uh, his wife and the children got on to the lifeboat. I don't think he tried to get on with them. There's Mr. Hosono, who was a second-class passenger from Japan, and he becomes Mm -hmm. very important in understanding what happened to the six Chinese sailors who survived. And Hosono uh, was a second-class passenger. He was an engineer on railways and architecture and everything else. And he was stopped. And he said, it's for first class only. And he said, I have a second class ticket. And because it was Japanese, they wouldn't let him on. He finally ended up in uh, near boat 10 when Officer Murdoch came around. This is getting very near the end. 10 was one of the last boats launched. And Murdoch had told Krikorian and uh, another Armenian and Hosono, get in the boat. Can you row? Get in. Do you know how to sail? Get in. Because the boats could also be made into sailboats. So when the wind came mm-hmm. up, sails could be raised within the lifeboats. So Hosono well, can- and Others were anyone who was a foreigner, a male, who uh, got, you know, if they looked Asian, they were, called, they were accused falsely of getting onto the lifeboats dressed as women. And their lives were ruined. And the bullying, we don't know what happened to the six Chinese sailors when they were on the Carpathia. But we do know that one Chinese man was beat up while still in the lifeboat by a bunch of women who tried clubbing him to death with oars. And we do know that Hosono was falsely accused of being a stowaway, falsely accused in the press of getting onto the lifeboat dressed as a woman. He was punched uh, on the rescue ship Carpathia. He spent the whole voyage of the Carpathia, in the rain, in the sleet, all the way to New York, sleeping out on a bench on the deck because it was unsafe for him to go inside. And I'm sure that's what happened to the six Chinese passengers too, the six Chinese sailors. And one of them was, in fact, plucked out of the water. So Mr. Fang was actually plucked out of the water, and when Officer Lowe approached in boat 14 and shined an electric torch on his face and found uh, him floating on a piece of wood and said, oh, he's just a Jap, there's better than him worth saving. And the women in the lifeboat rebelled, and they took over and rowed back and brought him on aboard. And... uh, he was very hypothermic at that time, but very smart in knowing that you have to, being a sailor, he knew hypothermia, you warm up the middle of your body first. And so he immediately yeah. took an oar. He just started moving his body, took an oar, and started rowing harder than anyone else. And when Lowe saw him rowing, he said, 
I'm really sorry about what I said about him. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> there's better worth saving. And so he kind of, he changed a little bit of his ways, and he stopped saying things about Japs and even worse statements he had. Then he blamed every coward uh, or everyone who was rumored to be a coward. He stopped calling them Japs. He started calling them Italians instead, from which came <laughs> a hell of a big protest from the Italian embassy. Well, I would think so. I, I think mm. that, that the more you have gone into all of these individuals, I mean, there were 1,500 that died. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think what, what got me as I got into the third book um, was the fact that, that there were kennels on board, and they eventually opened up the kennels so that the dogs, I guess, and cats, I, I don't know if there are cats too, but dogs, um, had a chance to try to swim. And right, and some I, I believe there was something said that Mr. Astor was going around talking about Kitty and the dogs. He had an Ardale named Kitty, and that he went back to the kennel, and it was probably Astor who released the dogs so that they would have had a chance. And, in fact, Charles Jalkin was swimming around after the Titanic went down, and suddenly there was a dog swimming near him. And then oh he started swimming and following the dog, trying to keep up with the dog. He didn't. He lost the, you know, because the life jackets were bulky, uh, He and dogs are better swimmers, actually. He wasn't able yeah. to keep up with the dog, but following in the direction of the dog, he came across Lightoller's overturned piece of wreckage. Wow. And uh, now, so following the now, dog, the dog did point him in the right direction. Were there? I, I think you said that there were some dogs that did actually survive. Right, right. Uh, some people got off into the lifeboats with their dogs, uh, if the dogs were small. And, uh, for instance, Henry Sleeper Harper, the owner of Harper Publishers, uh, he got into the lifeboat with his dog, Sam Yutzen. And you know what? You know you have been into this subject for too long when you know the names of the dogs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Walter Lord and I, we used to kind of laugh about the people who count portholes. And in the third book, I ended up counting portholes. Of course, with right. my friends, we were looking at how many portholes were open. There's actually a census of how many of the portholes were actually left open. And it turns out to be enough of them to have sunk the ship a lot faster. It's, there's some small possibility that if the water had stayed calm and if all the portholes were closed, she could have floated for about eight hours. Well, weren't they open because it was so hot? Because the yes, boilers were uh, running there were so heating hot? There were, there were heating problems uh, with the Titanic and the boilers were uh, just uh, the rooms and we're talking first-class staterooms above the water were way, way overheated. And the ship they were building at the time, the Britannic, they put electric fans in all the rooms. But no one learned. Well, actually, at the hearings, the, I, the problem of open portholes never really came up. So they didn't really think about it. So the Britannic, they had an unusually warm day, and they were wanting to air the ship out. 
and they had many of the portholes in those rooms when it was a hospital ship open, which was a prescription for sinking the ship in about 20 minutes if uh, it was torpedoed or hit mines. And that's exactly what happened. The open portholes sank the ship faster probably than the... uh, well, we can now look at some of the damage to the Britannic, and yeah, the portholes sank it faster than the initial damage from the explosions. Well, you know, it's it's always interesting to when talking to an author that has um, <clears throat> been as obsessive as you are um, to to you know what is it that hooked you on the Titanic. And what would not let you go? Well, at the end of her name, Titanic, uh, for I ended up out there to begin with totally by accident. Uh, we were going to the hydrothermal vents. So I work in multiple things at once. I mean, I'm working with friends on uh, some odd genetics that, of a disease that has an anti-cancer effect. That's one of the things I'm on now also working on things with Saturn's moon Titan and working with friends in string theory and all of that. And the Titanic, even all the way back in 1985, happened as just another interesting thing happening on the way to Jupiter's moons because okay. Jesse Stoff and I were the two crazy kids at the 4-H camp when our late teens came. Jesse did the original math that predicted, you know, the gravitational flexing between Jupiter and its moons, and there are probably ice worlds out there, but you could have volcanoes under the ice, and you could have oceans under the ice. He came up with that, and then I was always arguing with him, it's an environment that's warm enough to support life, but what could you have a food chain based on? And one day in 1977, Jesse had all these letters, this correspondence with Bob Ballard. His team had found the hydrothermal vents, the giant tube worms, the, a whole ecology based on sulfides instead of sunlight and photosynthesis being the base of the food chain. And so we were writing to Bob Ballard, and uh, we wrote our articles, we co-authored Darwin's Universe in 1980, and Bob Ballard was part of that book. And then after the Titanic was discovered, it hit them all emotionally. I wasn't on that expedition. Uh, For one, I was very sick uh, with uh, doctors giving me only a few months, but with a very weird disease that's a whole tongue twister to pronounce that it's a genetic condition that most doctors never see, and I got better. A reason I got better, remember that name, Jesse Stoff? He went off of uh, primordial biology and went on and studied medicine and went over to England where they see more of this genetic condition and where they treat it differently than they did in the United States. And he came back to New York. And in 1985, he's saying, you know what, you're going through looks very familiar to me. Let me do some blood tests, and if it's what I think it is, I think we can treat it. And he saved my life. So, uh, you know, three months later, uh, I'm sailing with Bob Ballard, working with the robot that uh, discovered the Titanic, uh, the robot Argo 
and we're going out to the Pacific to the hydrothermal vents. And one of the reasons Ballard brought me out there is he knew I was all about outer space, all about the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. I was one person he could bring along who would not ask him a single question about the Titanic. And I didn't. And uh, to me, Argo was a predecessor, an ancestor of the robots that are now finally being uh, budgeted to go to the moons of Saturn and Jupiter and get under the ice and land on Enceladus and sample the snow for signs of life. And uh, so we're out there, and uh, first two or three weeks or so, I'm talking with all these oceanographers and volcanologists and everything about outer space. By the way, we had some of the most brilliant people on the planet on that expedition. Many of them were polymathic, worked in multiple fields at once, but were not so hot about space because in volcanology, oceanography, marine biology, Woods Hole, for example, every time a space shuttle took off, they saw more than a year's budget going up in smoke. And so someone on the ship talking about space all the time, it's the competition for the funding that's talking about space. And one day Ballard said, you know, it can be a lonely, lonely, lonely ship when 40 people hate you. And we've got another month out here. And (laughs) Bob Ballard and Tom Detwiller, they handed me one of the copies of A Night to Remember. I had not even read that book yet. Oh, wow. November 1985, if you showed me the 1953 movie with Clifton Webb and Barbara Stanwyck, Titanic, and you showed me Walter Lord's, uh, you know, A Night to Remember based on Walter Lord's nonfiction book, I wouldn't have been able to tell you which of those movies was based on fiction and which was based on fact. And the book they gave me, it ended up signed by everyone, uh, was one of the ones that they had, it's the illustrated edition of Walter Lord's A Night to Remember that they had identified the uh, boilers from a photograph in the book. That book has since dove with me to the Titanic twice. Uh, But anyway, and it's also been on the Tulloch expedition to the Titanic. So it's had quite a lot of travels. Uh, So basically with all three major Titanic expedition groups, but I read that, and then it was, uh, you know, they brought out the photographs, they brought out the video, and I started it. And so everyone was happy. Ballard said, I don't want to hear Valkyrie Rocket, Europa, Jupiter, Saturn, again, the rest of the expedition. (laughs) And the last thing he wanted to talk about was the Titanic, and suddenly... He's talking, and everyone's talking with me about the expedition, and it all happened by accident. And it was really a fascinating expedition. You'll notice Bob Ballard now is really interested in Jupiter's moons. It was like yeah. around the, on, you know, almost two months out there, we infected each other with our diseases, and most of the people were very polymathic to begin with. Bob Ballard is interested in archaeology and space now and almost everything else and you had Harold or Sigurdsson uh, who was creating the field of forensic archaeology which strangely uh, he and his professor Sarah Bizell and oddly it was the Titanic that somehow made the uh, field of forensic archaeology widely acceptable 
but he was working, he was one of the people who figured out the eruption phases of Vesuvius in A.D. 79. I was being told by these volcanologists and archaeologists, you know, after you're done here, you think the Titanic is forensic archaeology? Go to the island of Thera. Go to Pompeii's sister city, Herculaneum, which, of course, I did. And I ended up in yeah. all of this by accident. Well, when, when you um, – I think one of the most fascinating things that you've done on top of everything else, of course, <clears throat> is that you have been able to go into, into the submersible and to actually go down and see the Titanic. And, um, I, you know, I, I've seen – I've seen, you know, videos and stuff like that of, of the exploration and, and what they've looked at and what they've recovered and what they've looked into as far as the, the stuff they've brought up. But the most beautiful thing about it are the rusticles. And mm. they, yeah. they um, it, it, it's fascinating. I, I just... It's sort of like if you see seaweed clinging to something and the currents kind of wafting it this way and that way. I mean, it's pretty, but the rusticles look like stalactites and stalactites, and yet they 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 have a flexibility to them so that they're constantly waving at you, and they're beautiful. Yeah, they and, really are. They look like. Uh... In the old paintings of the Flying Dutchman, and you see things hanging down, that's how uh, Ralph Hollis, one of the Alvin pilots, had described it. And they, they really do, because same, some of the same physics are operating, they look a lot like stalactites in caves. And so you send a robot into a room, and you see this beautiful combination of man-made and natural-made lines. And, and at first, when the, in 2001, when the robot came up to a window with all the glass intact, all this decorative glass that was still intact and the rusticles surrounding it, it was as if there was this chapel two and a half miles under the ocean. And that's what we all felt it looked like, like a chapel down there. Mm-hmm. And then to discover what a complex life form they are. And uh, there's possibilities now. It was delayed for the last uh, 12 years, but now, and it was about to start up and then COVID hit, but now the research is starting again uh, because there's all sorts of antibiotics, but there's also one antibiotic that seems to have the potential to act as an anti-cancer drug. And we do know partly from me having gotten infected by a rustical consortium, uh, we know <laughs> that uh, whatever chemicals they're producing are relatively harmless to human bodies. Uh, what happened in 2001 is... Uh, there were rusticles growing off one of the rustical bases that was brought up to the surface for temporary study and for removal of the rusticles. And I thought I saw zinc uh, collecting, being accreted by one of the rusticles. And I said, I think that is zinc. Well, from a background in paleontology, you're always tasting and smelling rocks. 
and things. And ah. so uh, I ah. took that piece of rusticle and tasted it. And I said, yes, that is zinc. And then all of a sudden Cameron's there with the camera. And, you know, Bill Paxton looks like he's ready to throw up. And Jim says, do that again. I did it again <laughs> for the camera. He said, cut, retake, <laughs> action. Oh and he God. had me tasting the rusticles several times. Well, I had an old root canal, okay, vintage <laughs> 1965 root canal when the posts that went into your tooth were steel. Yeah. Rusticles love to eat steel if they get in a nice, moist environment that's stable. <sighs> Two years later, we're out on an expedition to yeah. the hydrothermal vents, and I'm eating something. All of a sudden, the whole tooth crunches down and uh, beneath the root canal. And uh, it wasn't painful or anything, but I'm like, yeah, when I get back home, I better get something done with that. And uh, the dentist looks in there. He says, oh, this is beyond me. i got to send you to an oral surgeon. Something really funky is going on here. The old surgeon, uh, he says, we're really going to have to dig into this. He gives me the nitrous oxide, and I hear him swearing and saying all sorts of you know, unusual things. And, what the is that? And he takes the mask off. He says, what the hell did you do? I said, what do you mean? He says, I've never smelled anything. He first said, I've never seen anything like that. I've never smelled anything like that. And he had taken pieces of tooth out piece by piece and he said there's no iron left in here something left parts of the tooth but it ate all the iron i thought back i said rusticles rusticalis and i <laughs> i start going <laughs> i yell out that's our holding name mine and roy cullimore's name rusticalis titanicus for the whole consortium but anyway i need a sample i need to send it up to roy at saskatchewan and the guy goes to me after I've explained it, he said, I autoclaved it. You mean you've been going, oh. you're lucky I don't call the CDC. You've been walking around for two years with the thing that ate the Titanic in your mouth. What were you thinking? Wow. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, now these rusticles, it's, it's interesting because <clears throat> they eat the iron, and when the iron's gone, what, what happens? Well, it left the rest of my tooth there, sort of. <laughs> and uh, with the iron supports for the root canal gone, of course, the tooth collapsed. Uh, but on the Titanic itself, there are Howard Irwin steamer trunk. So there was a toy airplane he was bringing back for a child, a, a rubber band wind-up airplane. And the rubber was there, the wood, the paper, it was all there, but the... Uh, little iron wires that held the wheels, they were gone. His uh, tools for cutting and shaping leather, the wood was all there intact, but the iron, all that was held together was the carbon between the iron crystals. And as soon as they opened it up, you could see the shape of an awl, and the carbon was still there, but it crumbled apart and left only the wood. You had these ghost images of chisels and needles and awls, and they fell, leaving only the wood. His diaries were there. His letters were there. The love letters from Pearl were there. Here, we ended up learning about a man whose 
trunk was on the Titanic, the music he had written, everything was there, and yet he was never listed on the Titanic's passenger manifest. And when I first met Jim Cameron, I said, and he was still editing the film, and I said, how did you know the story of Howard and Pearl? And he said, who are Howard and Pearl? Well, it was a story very much like the story of Jack and Rose. And uh, interestingly, in the movie, the story came up with something that was brought up from the Titanic, you know, with the the drawing. Netflix. And here it was yeah. this music oh. and this diary and these letters, and that's how we learned and we found this whole family and everything. Jim Cameron hadn't known about it yet. Wow. Well, see, that's And that's I won't spoil so it for anyone who goes to read the book. Uh, you know, it's in Farewell Titanic, but uh, it's it's an amazing story of coincidence and tragedy and uh, Howard and his friend, they got onto the Titanic by winning a sweepstakes. They were both very talented guys. Uh, The other one had been hired. He was going to go back to England. He had a position with the London uh, Philharmonic. And, uh, but the real story turned out to be even sadder than the story of Jack and Rose. And even a bit stranger. So reality can be stranger than fiction. Well, there was the one man who had his two sons there, and he was kidnapping them from his wife. Oh, yeah. Navitril. That. Yeah. Yeah. And the story was completely different. So by archaeological thinking... Walter Lord and I uh, knew that the older son, he had said something to the son, and the son had only ever said before, I remember every word of it, but I'm taking it to the grave with me. And all we knew was that the wife had uh, died in an asylum, had, uh, had a severe mental breakdown, and died in an asylum. And because there was a gun, his body was found and there was a loaded revolver in his pocket and that he was kidnapping these children, well, by archaeological thinking alone, which is this shows you how wrong archaeology alone can turn out to be sometimes, we thought he was yeah. a vicious man and he must have said something intended to drive her mad. And in 1996... The younger, the older Navitril boy, he joined us before we went out to sea. And we were at the cemetery in Halifax. And he said, he had said he would never tell, but at the cemetery he said, there was a song my father used to sing to me, and I hear him singing that now. And have you, if you've seen the movie Babe, it's that song. If I could make a perfect day for you. And I'm going to get choked up and stop there. And uh, and, uh, then he told us the rest of the story that we did not know archaeologically. And his father had been a very busy, hardworking man, had built a good business. And no matter what, the mother in-law always uh, 
said she married below her station. She was, he was no good for her. Even after she had gone broke, sort of like the mother in the movie Titanic, and he yeah. paid her debts. He was taking care of her. And finally, she still wanted, this evil woman still wanted to put a wedge between them and was finally succeeding. So he cleaned out all the accounts. He <clears throat> set up a new identity and was on the Titanic traveling uh, to America and had a ticket for her to come alone. After he got to America, he would bring her over. It was all to save the marriage, and then the, life, uh, the iceberg intervened. And then they told us what his father said to him as he put him on the lifeboat. He said, I want you to remember this. Remember this. You tell your mother that I have always loved her, and I still do. Ah. And it was not, and it was kind of shattering to me that by archaeological thinking alone, he became this evil man. And similarly, William Murdoch, almost three quarters of the people who got off the Titanic alive uh, owed William Murdoch for that. Now, in the second book, in uh, Ghost of the Titanic, I am Walter Lord. We had focused on every eyewitness account and identifying, yes, the shooting near Boat A did take place, and uh, it really looked like it was Murdoch and uh, that, you know, that this happened. And then as more and more uh, Susan Stormer wrote a book, that was really a biography of Murdoch's whole life. Now, first off, there was Mr. Olson, who was able to collect together from the British and American inquiries every sighting of Murdoch through the night. And that's how we realized Murdoch saved most of the people who got off the Titanic. He threw them into the lifeboats, women, teenage children, husbands. He didn't care. Get them on and get them off the ship as fast as possible. And it was very clear he made a decision that he would not go down with the ship. Now, while Walter Lord and I have been studying just the last few minutes of his life, that even influenced how the movie Titanic was made. And, uh, and actually, so there was the matter of him saving those lives, and through other rescues he had been on, other cases, other ships, it really became clear. He made a decision. He was not going to get off the ship. And in a moment of real desperation, because at the moment that the first the warning shots and then shooting people who were trying to rush a boat that had all these women and children on it, the very last boat, uh, at that moment, the it was around the time Jack Thayer said he heard all this noise, he all the breaking glass and everything, the, sta the grand stairway was probably beginning to become like an earthquake and become buoyant and break loose because from that direction all these people came running out from inside the ship and running down toward Murdoch. And almost certainly what happened was he fired the warning shots, but the people were still coming. He fired into the crowd, and at that point... He, couldn't re he wasn't planning on living anyway, and then shooting himself was 
basically using his body to just be one more shocking thing to keep the crowd from rushing that boat. And it moved me so much to first uh, the Navitril story and finding out I had gotten him wrong. And the very next book I wrote, Dust, you'll see that I tell that whole story in there in a, in a novel. And it was really yeah. like my apology to Mr. Navitril. And when I was on the Titanic, September 10th, 2001, I brought Susan Stormer's book with me, and I wrote a letter to Mr. Murdoch pointing out how, again, archaeological thinking told the wrong story, and by focusing on the last three minutes of your life, how I asked the world to look at only one half of your face and guess the measure of the whole man. And, and I wrote, I said, I am going to correct this mistake. So basically I wrote a letter promising him and apologizing to him while I was on the deck looking out at the davit from that last lifeboat where he made his last stand to try to save lives. Well, it's just, you know, to have been able to go down in the submersible and, you know, I've, I've read what it was like in the submersible glue. I'm, terribly claustrophobic there's no way i would have gotten into one of those things but can can you explain to people what the submersible was like and how close the quarters were well it's so exciting being (laughs) that you really you get cramps in your legs and so on but uh you know and your sweat and bad breath condenses when you get down where it's cold and uh, so it's sloshing around in the bottom of the ball. Uh, but it's just a world of wonder down there. I mean, to me, one of the most amazing things is just as soon as you start descending, and I never shut up, you know that, all your listeners know that. Jim had these yeah. lipstick cameras in the submersible so he could record what we're doing down there and put it in his documentary. And he said, you know, He's watching this the day after. He's eight hours, 12 hours, 14 hours. All there is is a whispered, oh, my God, and I'm hungry. <laughs> Before you take out a sandwich, and you're, your head is plastered to the porthole the whole time. <laughs> But it's just so amazing. It's It really is like another planet as soon as you go below the water. And then after you're about three or 400 feet down, the light show begins. And you're going down at only two feet a second. So you can actually see all the strange fish all the way down. And so I was just glued there, writing notes, speaking notes, filming notes, and everything. And... And the the wildlife is half the wonder of it. And I mean, even the rusticles are part of the wildlife. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Titanic itself. So it was everything rolled into one. So, I mean, for me, I'm on the bottom of the ocean looking at rusticles. My mind is also millions of miles away inside Jupiter's and Saturn's moons. So it's space science. It's biology. It's archaeology. It's history. It's all of those things. So it's just your mind is in constant overload. On the second dive, I went down with Big Lou. Uh, 
how do you describe Big Lou? He's the character who is in the movie. Uh, he plays himself basically in the movie Titanic, the guy with the beard. But he's yeah. also kind of a cross between uh, McCready in the movie The Thing and a little bit of the Big Lebowski uh, <laughs> mixed together. Uh, in fact, the John Goodman character in The Big Lebowski, he's also mixed in with there. The John Goodman character in The Big Lebowski is based uh, specifically on Big Lou because he was a medic during Vietnam, saved a lot of lives. But uh, we're da- he's got a great sense of humor. The guy you want to be down with when you almost get stuck down there. And uh, But he saw me. I was so sensory overload and loving it that it's, you know, getting down, trying to push down below 30 degrees inside the submersible, and I'm removing layers of clothing. I'm down to just one shirt. And Lou and everyone, they're putting on, uh, you know, uh, like winter Russian coats and winter Russian hats. And Lou says to me, what are you doing removing another layer of clothing? You're actually hot. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he says, well, the aliens have arrived and you're proof of their first spawn. (laughs) But uh, Well, well, as you go down, now you – the Titanic is about two and a half miles down, right. and a lot of a lot of us have seen old people in scuba gear going down, and you know the bottom is covered with all sorts of flora and fauna and rocks and stuff like that. But the ocean floor, where this went down, it was clean. It was just sand. There wasn't a lot. Oh no, of anything no, there's. Other- there's- there's lots of wildlife down, or at least there used to be. In 2001, okay. there were brittle stars, uh, limpets, all sorts of shrimp. It's the planet of the cephalopods down there, relatives of the octopus. The first thing we saw at the bow was a big Dumbo octopus. And at another point, I had this little red spindly-armed octopus just hanging on to my viewport. And I'd sit, I'd write, I'd bend down, I'd write some notes, I'd look out. I, my little friend was there. And there was one moment after about 20 minutes when I looked up and it was gone. And <clears throat> cephalopods affect you that way sometimes. I never felt such a profound sense of loneliness before or since. And, uh, wow. and, down there, the cephalopods you see down there don't, you know, they're just lazy around a bit. They don't, they're not as bright as some of the cuttlefish and a couple of the octopus species we have up here, which some of them seem to me at least as smart as dolphins. Uh, but it's an amazing world down there for the wildlife. The fish, the organisms you see inside the Titanic are very different from what you see outside. Now, we've got... Really? 40,000 miles of ocean-spreading center wrapped round and round the wrapped around the earth, you know, like seams around a baseball. And mo- much of that's vo- all of it's volcanic. It's hot springs and volcanic rock forming, pushing continents apart. And if you go out laterally, you see these cracks 
Most of them, they go for tens of miles. Most of them are about two feet wide, but they go down further than your lights can go. And we've always wondered, when we get robots small enough to go down in those cracks, because if we have 40,000 miles of spreading center, we have hundreds of thousands of miles of those cracks. It's one of the biggest unknown environments on Earth. Inside the Titanic, I began to see probably what we're going to see. You know, we don't go in the Titanic. The robots go in and show us what's in there. But I think we were getting our first glimpses of what's down in those cracks. And so even the rat tail fish that you see inside the Titanic, they're very different from the ones you see outside. The ones outside are white. These guys are translucent. You can see through their organs. Why, why would that be? It, do you, is, is that such an environment that it, it changes the water so that it changes what the fish need in, in order to And survive? when they're inside and the oxygen levels are a little bit lower and then predators probably have a tougher time getting in there at them. And so organisms from the cracks, just like in 2003 we traced the rusticles on the Titanic, their origins back to the hydrothermal vents. So they're probably fish eggs and invertebrate eggs. Uh, they probably just drift along the bottom, probably for many centuries even, in suspended animation, until they come to a place that's habitable to them, either another hydrothermal vent or inside one of those cracks or inside these ships that we humans keep putting down there for them. <laughs> well, so is the Titanic becoming like a coral reef? Oh, or... it already is. And the rusticles, okay. they have an interconnected circulatory system, and some of them probably circulate their water from the point bow all the way to the end of the point bow, 450 feet long and all around. Uh, so in a sense, the bow section of the Titanic is, has already become one of the largest complex living organisms on Earth. If the rusticles were not built out of bacterial and fungal cells, they have, they're laid out in tissue layers with different functions. We would, we would be calling them something that belonged to the field of zoology, at least like sponges. Sponges okay. are an animal. So they are alive. Yeah, very alive, more and, so <laughs> than in the sense of just mere bacteria. Has anything been done to bring some up and try to um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. grow We've them artificially? Oh, yeah. We've grown them in the lab. We even grew them for one Titanic exhibition. And uh, they, they do quite well. So you can, you can duplicate them if indeed they do right. have um, parts of them that can yeah. be used for medical things. Like yes, for exactly. It may turn so out in the end that the Titanic and I wish I could go back in time and tell Thomas Andrews that this chance existed, that in the end the Titanic may save many, many, many multiples of lives more than uh, than died with her. 
So if they are alive, there's a consciousness, uh, so to speak. I don't know about that. You know, levels of consciousness, oh, boy, that, that would be a whole other show. You know, are some of the autonomous computers and robots we're making already a form of consciousness? Are they a form of life? And, you know, if we look at life as a kind of pH scale, and if we look at the definition of consciousness also as a kind of pH scale, uh, then, yes, some of our more complex computers are. Siri and Alexa, they're they're beginning to, our robots that we're sending to Mars and to Jupiter's moons and the ones that will be helicoptering around Saturn, they have to be autonomous. Have you seen or experienced rusticles any other place except on the Titanic? Oh, yes, the... uh, uh, the Britannic even has there a different type of rusticle inside as you go toward the engine room. And uh, there's some indications that they are very toxic, actually. And uh, the Bismarck has rusticles. Uh, even in the Great Lakes, they grow very, very slowly. They take centuries to grow, but uh, on the Hamilton and the Scourge, we see rusticles trying to grow. Interesting. So I know that... So they're a worldwide organism. Also, fossils of them have been found in Australia, going back more than 2 billion years. So in rusticles, among other things, we're seeing part of the origin of multicellular tissue-layered life. They not be may, they may not be our direct ancestors living beside you know descendants of our ancestors living beside us, but something close to it. One family member once said, "Well, uh, the study of rusticles it's maybe the sincerest form of ancestor worship." <laughs> well, if that's the case, then it has DNA. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! And we may be able to, we're up to a point now where we can do things with DNA, find the parts that are producing these new medicines and uh, recombinantly have bacteria, for example, that would produce these medicines and other processes that would produce these medicines, uh, medicines just like you see drugs like Humira that are uh, produced somewhat the same way and some of the new anti-cancer drugs that help the immune system to fight cancer. And this is something that is just, you know, it's, an, it's saving a lot of lives and prolonging a lot of lives now significantly, and this is only the beginning. That's, it's fascinating, and, and when you stop to think about it, <clears throat> All it needs is iron. Is is it a particular kind of iron that it needs to grow, or just iron? Oh, they're very opportunistic organisms. They will uh, metabolize any metal, even uh, the cores of sunken nuclear submarines. 
So, ah. <laughs> yeah, they don't mind uranium, <laughs> which kind of makes sense because most of our uranium ore was actually, like our iron and like many of our metals, were actually accreted by uh, micro, by bacteria, by rustical-like bacteria. Fascinating. The bacteria so, worked so well in one part of Africa that they uh, condensed so much uranium that the bacteria actually accidentally created a bacterial reef that became a reactor hot enough, a natural reactor, hot enough to kill all those bacteria. But there are many indications that our gold that forms in hydrothermal vents, that it's accreted maybe not all the time. Nature rarely says either or number of different things that go on. But bacteria are involved. And even in the Titanic, I mean, all of your opals were formed by bacterial colonies. And even at the Titanic, somehow silica were being extracted from the water, and in some of the rusticles we found very thin veins of rusticles forming. In the shells of the rusticles, we found opal. Wow. It's an amazing if, planet. <laughs> if, if rusticles don't mind the um, radioactivity... Would that be a safe way to defuse nuclear bombs and things like that to put them in a in a an atmosphere where the rusticles could eat it and and transform it into something other than radioactivity? I don't think so because the one submarine that's been looked at it's apparently a very very slow growth. Uh, they don't like it that much, and not as much as they like the Titanic's hull anyway. Uh, and for defusing, I think the only thing we can depend on to defuse uh, our new period of nuclear weapons escalation stupidity is that's up to us. Wow. And, uh, well, so... So has the Titanic has been um, declared a, a national park, so to speak? Um, Somewhat, yeah. It's, uh, they, there are going to be devices put down there to make sure it will be known. If someone goes in and starts putting a robot sub down there with a shovel on its nose and starts trying to plow the debris field. And... Uh, that shouldn't be allowed because there are still some signs that, at least in the ejecta blanket around the stern, there may actually be human remains under the sediment. And, uh, you know, you just don't do that. No, no. It was hard enough seeing, you know, that rather than doming over uh, the World Trade Center wreckage, that everything was dug out that way. It was that was pretty hard right there, and uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to see that done to the Titanic. Well, no, I wouldn't either. I know that 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 some stuff has been brought up, and how yeah. do they decide 
what to bring up and what not to bring up and what to i mean i can i can <clears throat> remember the pictures of um stacked plates that are just just strewn there like they just kind of leaned over right. and they're the there cabinet, I mean, uh, the wood of the cabinet had uh basically fallen away probably by bacteria mostly and uh the plates were still left stacked and uh the People who, some of the objects had to be raised as I look back on it. So Howard Irwin's steamer trunk. To me, the real treasure, for one thing, the Tulloch group, and when they raised those artifacts, they really did take good care of them. And in the end, they were going very, very slowly, very carefully picking and choosing the objects they brought up. They'd go out on a whole expedition and bring up only about 20 different artifacts, working on them very carefully. The attitude was, if we bring it up, we have to curate it. We have to make sure it's still there for people to see 100 years from now. And I do think someone can, because we're visual creatures and we're tactile creatures, so to be able to go up to the big piece that was raised from the Titanic and actually anyone can go up and touch it. Uh, yeah, I'm kind. I'm kind of pleased. I'm pleased to see that. I don't think the Titanic should be just something where an elite priesthood of scientists and explorers are the only ones who can go down, who can go see it. Uh, you can see it in a museum now. And I think the real treasure of the Titanic is not uh, Lady Cardez's diamond in a room somewhere. Uh, <clears throat> I think she left the ship with it anyway and just made a false insurance claim. But that <laughs> beautiful pink, natural pink diamond, I, she was, it was in her room. She wasn't going to leave it there. Many people went back to their rooms for their jewelry and, it left the right lifeboats went picked up their stuff and got back on the lifeboats and were lowered uh but the real treasure is paper and we now know that in certain conditions paper is preserved we've seen through robotic eyes where the mail bags are stacked and they're covered in a protective sheath of bacteria so that there's no oxidation going on in those mailbags. It's just like Howard Irwin's steamer trump. The oxygen was gone. The oxygen was all used up. That's why you had reducing bacteria that dissolved all the iron, but they left the paper intact. And that's how we could read this whole love story that nobody ever knew about. So imagine well, I, in mailbags... I love... Somewhere in one of those bags or in a couple of those bags are all the letters that were written by people on the Titanic during the entire outbound voyage up to that, through that last day. Well, I have to admit, the one place I did chuckle was the one man that was putting his mistress on a lifeboat and he ran across his wife as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There were many stories what, like that. There were letters we found and of this married couple, and the one guy was worried about some bad investments he made and everything, and uh, they, it turns out they were married but not to each other. Yeah. <laughs> and we've only seen 
a little bit of the paper that is preserved down there. And the thing is, Howard Irwin's steamer Trump was was about to fall apart when they recovered it. It was falling apart as they recovered it. And they managed to recover it all. And what happens is those suitcases on the bottom, steamer trunks, once they do start being eroded from the outside, once they do start collapsing and oxygen does get in at them, most of that paper, any paper that's inside will start to deteriorate. So what's the process? You you put it into water that is ocean water so that it's continued, it's, still submerged when you bring it up? Right, right. And when there's, you keep it wet, and then when there's uh, sulfides on the paper that make it look black, you can get it off of the paper. And since most paper was rag paper at the time, and the inks Mm -hmm. they were using were pretty indelible, and a lot of people wrote just in pencil. And so the writing is preserved. It's not like the pens we use today where... You know, if if you're dropping water on the ink and it flows, it's lost. Yeah. Wow. Well, what about, um, I I know you have, there's a lot of stuff that has come up that has been preserved and is in museums and stuff like that, but um, how do you decide what to bring up? I mean, are there different kinds of things you, you bring up, or is it more personal property, um, what are the things that have well, high priority? For example, priority? in 1996, they brought up a soup taurine, and it was a silver one. And when they brought it up, there was a eight-inch thick piece of the sediment that had been bacterial concreted together. And it was very fine sediment, very sulfur-rich. The sulfur apparently came mostly from the steel from the Titanic. And uh, that, you know, they chopped it off, and it still had the labeling, all the stamps on it, in reverse on the, this mm-hmm. fossil impression. And I asked the curator, oh, uh, she was going, she, they were just going to throw it away, throw it overboard. And I said, oh, can I uh, have that? And they said, yeah, keep it. You know, it was not even overboard. Some things, rusticles and stuff, were just hosed down into the bilge pumps. And uh, so I looked at it, and I saw something. I started chipping away at it, and I found part of a screw. And then I found part of it. I started finding things in there, buttons and things, things that had been ejected so... Uh, the soup taurine had sunk and then settled on top of the ejector blanket near the stern. And that inside that sediment that had hardened is where I started finding things. And among those things were uh, first uh, chopped, uh, it was part of a cow bone. And uh, so it was from the kitchen area. And then Uh found... Uh, well, it was a human bone with part of a uh, gold-plated copper wedding band. And that was when I just said, okay, we got to stop everything here and not even do landings on that 
a whole 300-foot area around that. You don't even want to land the submersible. Don't bring anything up from that area, which is the starboard side ejecta blanket from the stern. And then uh, George Tullock and I had wrapped everything in plastic and put it in a box and put a little memorial note on it, everything that was in that bioconcretion, because then I had to completely dissect the concretion all the way down. And we put it all right back there in the debris field where it was found, and which was the right thing to do. Oh, yeah. It's just, you know, when you think of how huge the ship was, how many people there were on it, and and what kind of stories it has yet to tell. I don't think you've written your last book on it. I, yeah, I've said I had before, but who knows. I mean, at the end of her name, Titanic, I said I would never write on the subject again. I was done with it. And also her name, Titanic, I think the reason it emotionally affected most people is that, and my editor asked me at the end if I was willing to write about the story beneath the story. And there was someone I loved very much, a family member who had uh, been a horribly abused child and basically seemed one of the strongest people you would ever meet. But inside it was really like the story of Richard Corey and and then cocaine addiction got into it and destroying herself and people around her. And that, when I wrote the title, her name, Titanic, I wasn't writing about a ship. And throughout the book, it was really, to me, the Titanic became a beautiful child being abused by the people who ran her, who had control over her life. And that's what the book was really about. And I was never going to go back to it, but Jim, Jim, uh, Bob Ballard had warned me out at sea, and he said, you've started to touch her, and I'm married to her now, Bob said, and I don't know if I'll ever be away. He said, she never lets you go. And uh, I can, I can it's true. That. I ended up back at it. The second book, I don't know if you noticed in Ghost of the Titanic, uh, what I wanted to do with that, give myself a new challenge, to write the story, of it because now we're into forensic archaeology, and even the rusticles that were sampled in 1996, the, the ones that were attached to a piece of steel, they had preserved everything that went on in the, the blast field near the stern, uh, the layering of the blast field, and then the years that had passed afterward as things are deteriorating, and then all the icebergs that passed over, dropping little pebbles, and we could measure how much ice passed by in certain decades and so on. And so it was like an archaeological dig. And in archaeology, you're digging from the surface backward, so you're reading the story backward. And I wanted to do it, and I knew I'd have done it right if people would read the book and unless told otherwise, would never realize that they were reading the story of the Titanic backwards. Uh-huh. And it starts in the lifeboats, and it ends with the iceberg ahead and hitting the iceberg. Uh-huh. And only three or four people ever came to me that they had noticed it. 
But now I've told well, it. <laughs> I hope now, I haven't now spoiled, spoiled it. it for everybody else. Um, it just seems to me that that there's still so much to tell. There's so so much to learn from it, and and um, so many personal stories that have yet to be told. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's your life's work, but it, it could it could be but an ongoing most, project for most, sure. I, I wouldn't be surprised if I end up back there again, but, uh, you know, there's just as people like Walter Lord and the generation before me kind of, they mentored people like me and sent us down in the submersibles and everything, and now I'm at that age where it's my job to pay that forward. So uh, there are new explorers in their late 20s, early 30s. If I'm ever on a ship at the Titanic again, they're the ones who are going down. I'm, I've had my days of magic down there, and I'm not going to get greedy about it and take someone else's dive for myself. I'm giving the dives to them. So yeah, I'm happy to be knowing... topside. I'm happy to be analyzing everything as it comes up. And uh, but now it's for the next generation of explorers. Are they still going to be getting artifacts from it, or or is that over? I think the artifact period, maybe in the future, maybe Woods Hole would get involved in it. I don't know. Uh, I would love to see anything that has writing on it brought up. I think that's the important thing to bring up. Uh, I would avoid bringing anything up around the that's in the uh, ejector blankets around the stern. Uh, anything that's attached to the sediment and so on, it, it really should be left there. The stern section, I think, is just look, don't bring things up. Uh, the, the debris field where there are suitcases and so on that would have writing in them because the ones that were brought up did have writing in them, steamer trunks, I think those should be brought up. I think papers should be brought up, that these voices that have been silent for 110 years, like Howard Irwin and Pearl, they can be brought, and Pearl's mother, they can be, and Henry Sutall, all in the same steamer trunk, they can be brought back, and they can speak for the first time, really. Oh, yeah, so and I know, I know at least one of always important. One of the pursers um, I know opened up the safe and, and went and found the people and gave them what they had put in the safe. Mm-hmm. Right. Apparently two of the pursers opened the safes and were seen by multiple survivors on the deck handing watches and things, things they could identify to people. If they found those people on the deck, they were handing them over to their owners. And there was one person... Okay that uh, we know of uh, that was probably looting staterooms around the uh, Grand Stairway because objects from several of those rooms were found in one satchel that was raised from the bottom in 1987. And uh, the expedition team had tried to locate the families, and one of the families they did identify, and it was... Uh, they thought it belonged to all one family and said, there's no one by that name in our family. There's no Alice. or any. This, this stuff is not ours. 
and there was the body of one man that was recovered by the McKay Bennett, and he had all these monogrammed silver items and everything, and he had been going deck to deck, apparently looting staterooms. So one or two people with keys had been going around uh, looting. And that's why Thomas Andrews had such a problem finding keys because uh, he and a couple of other people on the ship were trying to get into staterooms and make sure all the portholes were closed. And they uh, had to end up breaking down doors and then throwing the doors overboard so that uh, people might have something to float on. I mean, the the element of heroism that went on is is, is spectacular, um, and and when you have that kind of heroism, then you have stupidity as well. But right, I, you, I would the say Titanic. That. It's like a microcosm of human civilization. It's people had a little more than two hours to decide how they were going to behave, and there were some cowards around. Uh, there were thieves around. There were heroes around, everything you could find in any cross-section of society. There were racists around, and then there were the people, some who were the opposite of being racist, and Edith Russell was one of them. And uh, there was, I mean, society then, it was like an an alien civilization. You had... uh, at one of the major churches in New York City, you actually had a preacher, and this was reported in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle as if this was right and just, that someone was condemning, saying God struck down the Titanic because you had someone on board the Titanic who was making interracial children. And Edith Russell remained friends with the LaRoche family, and on the Carpathia she felt she had to explain these two little girls as two adorable little Chinese orphans who had been adopted by Mrs. LaRoche. Because Edith Russell felt that there was actually a danger there. Uh, She probably saw a lot of bad things going on on the Carpathia uh, because I'm sure that Mr. Hosono wasn't the only uh, that the six Chinese survivors were probably also out in the rain on the decks, sleeping on benches just to be safe. And that's why they never told even their own families. Uh, John Fong, whose father finally made a life here in the United States, and uh, his father never spoke about it. All he knew from his father that his father was rescued after a ship sank and he was found floating on a piece of wood and he was rescued. He, so he assumed it happened near China. And uh, when he went in 2006 with a cousin to a Titanic artifact exhibit, and his cousin said to him, you know, your father was on that ship. Oh my and then gosh. he found out later that his father's story, the man rescued floating on the piece of wood, that was what inspired the story of Jack and Rose. And his story was actually in a first edit of the film, but then Cameron realized having two people rescued off floating wood in the same film, it's sort of like writing the Bible and making Moses part the Red Sea twice. And, uh, <laughs> but 
his story was actually the inspiration for that, and Jim Cameron confirmed that recently. In fact, he uh, produced, was the producer on the film that was made of what happened to the eight Chinese sailors, two of whom went down with the ship, six of whom survived. But they must have gone through a terrible time on the Carpathia to keep it secret all those years. Well, even on the Carpathia. The other thing is that Tom Fong, when he found out about this, he went to Encyclopedia Titanica and other sites and they asked him how old he was when he said, I'm the son of a Titanic survivor after 2006. And they said, you'd have to be 95 years old. What do you mean you're only about 60, you know, however old he was then? I don't think it was quite 60 yet. And uh, they called him a fraud. They blocked him. But fortunately, they kept his email address to red flag him if he ever wrote back to them again and not to let anything he said go out on the site. And then it was when uh, Stephen Schweikert and his people said, yeah, uh, do you have any records of this guy? He said he tried to, uh, no, they hadn't found him yet. And it was through them having kept his email address that they were able to find him and get the rest of the story. And it had to be pretty funny when they went to uh, these encyclopedic, Titanic sites and said, no, no, it really was that way, and we're working with Jim Cameron on this, but also he was younger than people thought he should have been, which was the reason they thought he was a fraud, because not many people in America know about the Chinese exclusion laws. And so, you know, we have that in my family, that, uh, you know, Men who came here in the teens and the early 20s of the 20th century, they were not allowed to have a wife and bring a wife to America and uh, start a family. They were only allowed to work. And as World War II happened and China became our ally, they got rid of the Chinese exclusion laws. Wow. And well, so, you on know, Carpathia, one side of my family, we have a guy who married, he was in his 50s when he married and had children. And it was an wow. arranged marriage and everything, but it turned out to be one of those really good marriages. Wow. But even on the Carpathia, they divided the people by class. Yes, yes. Once they got on the Carpathia, they just immediately went back to dividing everyone by class again. Yeah. Wow. You know, it, it's you, you begin to be very hopeful that that time is past, and yet it still is seen in so many places. It's frightening. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, it's something I think civilization uh, intervals always falls back on. You know, we yeah. move forward, we fall back, and I hope we can just becoming a better species and a better civilization. When you consider what we've gone through, you would hope that we we could learn, you know, from from situations like this. Um, It's it's horrifying 
to think that the, the people that many of the people that were misbehaving were the upper class that should have known better. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I mean, I work a lot in archaeology. You know archaeology that involves volcanoes so of course i work a lot through roman history and there are so many things that remind me of ancient rome that not just the united states but the world keeps you know repeating replicating and if we keep repeating those kinds of mistakes Rome falls. And we have a lot of people who are trying to erase or deny or revise human history and, uh, you know, even our own history in this country. And we we really have to remember the bad things and teach those bad things and why they're bad and why we should never repeat those things again. I sure wouldn't have wanted to live in the first half of the 20th century, growing up in the first half of the 20th century. And I, I don't think I would have picked up those things because my own parents didn't. And uh, nah, my parents, I mean, my father came back from World War II and he actually became a beatnik. And I, I can't picture him down in the village on the bongo drums, but he really was. I mean, I was the kid who grew up like the kid in that movie, uh, Iron Giant. Uh So naturally, I had to do something to disgust my father while I was going to college and everything. What did I do in college? I became a Republican during Nixon. Oh, my. I became sort of like the Michael J. Fox character in Family Ties. (laughs) I actually, in college at one point, would wear a tie and a jacket. (laughs) I was a really creepy Uh, kid. I mean, if I went back in time and met myself when I was about 18, I'd probably smack myself. Well, not tonight, because we're down to about two minutes. So um, your your website is charlespellegrino.com. Is there yeah. anywhere else where people can go to find you? Well, I hope the website is now connecting easily to Facebook. So I correspond with people on Facebook, and uh, you know, that's connected to the website. You can go into the website and get lost in the Titanic if you want. And uh, some part of the server crashed a couple of years ago, or some people tried to crash it, and they did a very good job at it. And I had all the original handwritten diaries and everything of survivors. And I just have to get time to put all of that back up there uh, again. Anyone out there who's researching something on the Titanic and you say, oh, I want to read, well, Alfred White, he's already there. But if there's some survivor that I've mentioned and you want to read their original letter or something, I can photograph it and iPhone it to you. And, well, you uh, also, but I intend to get it also, all up there. And well, you've uh, written, you've written a, a, an amazing book on Hiroshima. Yeah. You've written an amazing book uh, that, that is a novel on dust, which is also fabulous. Right. So what would happen to the world if all the insects disappeared? And then, of course, it's happening now. But scary. Yeah. That's, 
It's very scary, but I want to thank you so much. I so appreciate your coming on, and and we'll have you back again. We'll we'll get some of your other ex, you know expeditions and stuff out there for people to learn about. So thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you. Okay, everybody. Thank you. You too. And and everybody, um, do keep watching. Um, this will be up on YouTube shortly, so please check it out there. And if you like what you see, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's how we know you're there. Thanks again, and have a wonderful evening. Good night now.